We'll read two short passages of scripture together, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and then turning to the next chapter, chapter 11. These two passages, we have some of the Apostle Paul's inspired instruction on the guarding and celebration of the Lord's Supper. So the first passage that we will read is 1 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 16, continuing through verse 21. Let us hear the word of the Lord. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say, That the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Now we turn the page to chapter 11. And we will start reading at verse 23. And read through verse 30. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks he brake it and said. Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. And when he had supped saying. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Thus far, we read in the Holy Scriptures, on the basis of these two passages, as well as the rest of God's Word, we have the instruction in Lord's Day 30 of the Heidelberg Catechism, the last of the Catechism's Lord's Day's explaining to us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Lord's Day 30 begins in question 80 by asking, What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we by the Holy Spirit are engrafted into Christ, 
who according to his human nature is not, or is now not on earth, but in heaven at the right hand of God his Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. And further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them. So that the Mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death, and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. Are they also to be admitted to this supper who, by confession and life, declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned, and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven, till they show amendment of life. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus, one of the main ideas of of Lord's Day 30 is the important calling that Christ has given to his church to guard his table, to preserve the holiness of the Lord's Supper. And that's one of the central and very practical ideas of this Lord's Day, which can sometimes be overlooked Because the polemic against the Mass often takes the limelight in this Lord's Day. Now that polemic is an important polemic which is still worth understanding. Lord's Day 30 has a bit of an interesting history. The very first edition of our Heidelberg Catechism did not contain question and answer 80. The question and answer about the Mass. But that question and answer was added not long after the Catechism was first published, and it was added as a response to strident criticism from Rome of the Reformation's return to the biblical practice of the Lord's Supper. And so, question and answer 80 is by no means out of place in this Lord's Day. In fact, it fits very well. Because a proper biblical understanding of the Lord's Supper, a correct doctrine of the sacrament is important for the communication of the message that that supper is intended to communicate and for our profit as we partake of that supper and for the glory of the God who instituted that supper. And so, while there are things in Lord's Day 30 that maybe seem a little bit outdated to us in that we are centuries removed from the fierce theological controversies of the Reformation Day era. The the response 
is not to look down on this part of our confession and say it's irrelevant to me now. That's never the response we should have in the church. As the Spirit leads His church into a deeper understanding of the Scripture, there must ever be a lively appreciation of the lessons of the past, such that those lessons of the past may be brought to bear and applied to the present needs of the church today. The church's past is never irrelevant. It contains a multitude of lessons that are ever to be borne in mind. And so as we consider this Lord's Day once again, let us remember those lessons of the past and bring them to bear on the church's life in the present. As we enter into Lord's Day 30 this morning, our focus is going to be especially on that central idea of guarding the table. That's one of the practical callings that the Word of God gives us and is explained in this Lord's Day. The Lord's Supper, which we partook of last Sunday is something very special. It's a gift of God to be cherished, to be guarded. We are to regard it as something holy. And the believer has a responsibility and the church has a responsibility to guard, to safeguard that gift of God. And so Lord's Day 30 contains that important instruction for us too, which is very practical. How do we, as members of the church, guard the table? And how do we, through the church institute, celebrate it properly? Who is to be admitted to the supper? Who is not? These are practical questions that this Lord's Day addresses for us. So let's consider Lord's Day 30 under the theme, Guarding the Lord's Table. First, we'll answer the question, what? What is this calling to guard the Lord's table? Then secondly, we'll look briefly at how we guard the Lord's table. And then finally, a couple reasons why. Our Lord's Supper form, right from the beginning, refers to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. And calling it that immediately shows us how special this supper is. It's a holy supper. And it is holy because it is the supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. A special supper that Jesus Christ himself instituted and gave to his people as a gift. A supper in which we celebrate the remembrance of what Jesus has done. A supper, as we saw last week, in which we enjoy very real spiritual communion with our crucified, risen, ascended, and exalted Savior. A supper that pledges all of the glories of the covenant made perfect in the world to come. It's a supper set apart. It's a supper that's special. It's a supper that's holy unto the Lord. It's the feast of the covenant. The covenant is that wonderful creation of God's grace. It's a relationship. A most intimate relationship. The relationship that God makes with you and me and all of his believing people. The relationship that he draws us into by his grace. A relationship that's built upon the solid foundation of Christ's finished work. It's a relationship characterized by love and friendship and fellowship and self-giving. That's the covenant. And all that the covenant is, 
is shown to us in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the feast of God's covenant. It's the visible sign and seal of that covenant life rooted in and based upon that finished work of Christ upon the cross. That's why it's holy. That's why it's beautiful. That's why it's precious. That's why when we come to the Lord's Supper, we are standing on holy ground just as much as when Moses stood before the burning bush. It's a unique meeting of God with His people. The redeemed exercising their spiritual communion with their Redeemer. Children sitting at the table of their Father. Their Father who is the Holy One who yet accepts them and receives them poor sinners though they are because of the blood of the Lamb. Shed for them. Pictured by the very signs and seals. The bread and wine. That is set upon the table. And given to the father's children. To partake of. In short. The Lord's Supper. Is one of the most beautiful. And intimate expressions. That we have. On this side of heaven. One of the most beautiful. And intimate expressions. Of that covenantal relationship. We have with God our father. And our Lord Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul says. 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? That's a rhetorical question. He's saying it is. This is something amazing. It is the communion of the blood of Christ. At the Lord's table we have communion with Christ based upon His shed blood through His work for us. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? His body which was given for us gives us communion with Him, saving fellowship with Him and with one another who are gathered together into His mystical body which is the church. For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. The deepest realities of our faith are expressed at the Lord's table. The wonder of the propitiatory sacrifice of the incarnate Christ for us. The manifold benefits of that once and for all sacrifice. Union with Christ. Fellowship with Him. And through our union with Christ, and through His redemptive work, adoption, we are, his, we are God's children who have a place. We belong at the Father's table. Is there any other supper quite like it? There isn't. There's nothing quite like it. It's a special supper. It's a holy supper. And this special supper God is pleased to use as a means of grace to nourish your soul. He uses it alongside the word of the gospel to work grace in us for the confirmation of our faith, for the furtherance of our sanctification, for the enrichment of our fellowship with our God. It's because the Lord's Supper is so special Such a gift that God calls us to guard it. To protect its sanctity. 
When, when we talk about guarding the Lord's Supper, we shouldn't think about this as the, the legalistic observance of some pile of rules or some sort of superstitious practice. The way so many of the religions of the world have taboos and certain rules you must follow lest you desecrate some holy object. That's not the thinking of the Christian. We, we want to protect the Lord's Supper, guard its sanctity because of what it is, what it really is, what it pictures, what it signifies. And because, as we saw last week, coming to the Lord's Supper is a, a beautiful act of worship. The Lord's Supper ought to be guarded. And the guarding of it is an expression of love toward the God who gave us this gift. And so there's a calling that the scriptures lay before us to guard the table by only coming to the table as a worthy partaker. And that's really what question and answer 81 focuses our attention on. The table is guarded this way. It's guarded by doing all that we can insofar as we able to, are able to ensure that all who come to the table are worthy partakers. And question and answer 81 explains really what a worthy partaker is. The question says, for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? And, and it's asking, what kind of people belong at the Lord's table? Who may come? Who is a worthy partaker? To use the language of 1 Corinthians 11. And what answer 81 does is it brings together the various passages of Scripture and sets before us what we could call the three fundamental marks of the person who is a worthy partaker of the Lord's Supper or the person who is in the proper spiritual posture, frame of mind, condition of heart to come to the Lord's Supper to celebrate it reverently and joyfully for the glory of God and for the edification of his or her own soul and faith. Question and answer 81 makes clear that the Lord's table is to be guarded by admitting only believers to the table. Or to put it another way, only believers may come to the table and partake of the supper. Our Lord's Supper form rightly says that Christ has ordained this supper only for the faithful. And the faithful are those who by the grace of God have true faith. And are living out that faith in a life of faithfulness. Jesus instituted the supper for believers. You, you let your mind go back to the night when our Lord instituted the supper. And that's, that's so very clear, is it not? Jesus instituted the supper when he was gathered together with his disciples. Believers. And those disciples represented his church. The, the congregation of believers. Jesus did not institute the Lord's Supper out in the streets of Capernaum. He instituted it in the upper room after he had celebrated Passover, the Old Testament feast that the Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of, and he instituted it with his disciples. And he says to them, 
Luke 22, 19 and 20. This is my body which is given for you. For you, my people. This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you, believers. The Lord's Supper is the covenant supper. And those who belong at the supper are the covenant members. Elect believers. Who have come to conscious faith. And who exercise that faith in coming and communing with Christ. And so the emphasis here is that worthy partakers are those who believe in Christ and believe the gospel message of the visible word which the sacrament sets before us. Believers are those who know Christ, but they know Him not with a dry, academic, merely intellectual knowledge, but they know Him with heart knowledge. And upon that heart knowledge, there is based a hearty trust. Believers know Christ and they trust Christ. As the Catechism says, they trust That finished work of Christ. They trust that their sins are forgiven. And that their infirmities are covered by his passion and death. That's the worthy partaker. It's the person who wholeheartedly casts themselves upon Christ. The believer who is welcome at the Lord's Supper. Is the believer who comes with faith's open hand. An empty hand. Ready to receive. From the Savior. The Lord's Supper then. This is important. And we must always be reminded of this. The Lord's Supper. Is not a supper instituted just for. The strong believer we might say. But it is instituted especially for the weak believer. There may be. Rather. There may never be spiritual elitism at the Lord's table. There are not classes in the church of Christ. And wherever classes show themselves, they are symptoms of a spiritual sickness. And if ever there are classes of people where some people may come to the table, but other believers know, because they're too weak, They have too many infirmities. That's a problem. The Lord's Supper is for the weak. The Lord's Supper is designed for weak, faltering, fainting, struggling, doubt-ridden, guilt-stricken, suffering believers. After all, it's a supper given to us to strengthen and nourish our faith. Those who think they are strong don't need strengthening. It's the weak and those who know their weakness and their infirmities who need that strengthening. That's the Savior that Jesus is. He came, as He said, not for the whole, not for those who think they are whole and well and righteous and need nothing, but He came for the sick. And He instituted His supper for the spiritually weak and the spiritually sick. Who simply cast themselves upon Him. And look to Him to supply all their needs as the great physician of souls. Let us never stay away from the Lord's Supper. Because we think to ourselves, I'm not good enough. 
I'm not righteous enough. My faith isn't strong enough. No. Weak, struggling believer, this supper was instituted for you. For you. To be the medicine of Christ. To you. To you. Just think about it a moment. How many strong believers were there at the institution of the Lord's Supper? How many of Jesus' disciples had it all together that night that Jesus was betrayed? The disciples barely understood what was going on. And later that night, they'd all be scattering into the wooded mountainside of Mount Olivet, forsaking their Lord to the hands of Judas and the armed band. It was a circle of weak, faltering, fainting believers there. Disciples of little faith. The Lord's Supper is for believers. Praise be to God if... He has given us such grace that we come to the table with a strong faith. Thanks be to God for that. That is His work. But let none stay away because they say to themselves or think to themselves, my faith is too little. No, your little faith is all the more reason to come for the strengthening of that faith. But along with faith, the table is guarded By having only repentant believers come to the table. In our explanation of answer 81 here, we skipped the first part. We started with faith. And logically so, because repentance flows out of true faith. But notice how answer 81 begins. This is the kind of person the Lord's Supper is for. Those who are truly sorrowful for their sins. And yet trust. That these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ. There's faith and yet trust. But faith and repentance are inseparable twins. You can't have one without the other. The first fruit of a living faith is genuine repentance towards God. You can't cut faith and repentance apart. They go together. They go together. The worthy partaker... Of the Lord's Supper is not the perfect person. Because there's no such thing. And anyone who thinks they're perfect. Doesn't belong here. They have to get past by the grace of God. Their self-righteousness. The Lord's Supper is instituted for poor sinners. Like you and me. But we must know our sins. The worthy partaker is the sinner. Who is truly sorrowful for his sins. That is he is repentant. Truly sorrowful. That means doing more than shedding a few tears. Because you have to. It means I actually despise my sin. I don't just say I do. I actually despise it. And that despising of my sin manifests itself in a changed way of life. It manifests itself by my efforts to get rid of my sin. To correct My life where I have been walking contrary to God's commandments. By reconciling with my brother whom I have sinned against. By going to him or her and apologizing and expressing my sorrow to them. And seeking forgiveness or vice versa. True sorrow gets sin. That is it gets what sin is. And gets why sin is so bad. And is therefore bothered by sin. The Lord's Supper is for those 
who see their sin and grieve over their sin. For those that sin smites, and it leads them to smite their breasts and say with the publican, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And say with Paul, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And to say with David, against thee, thee only have I sinned. Not just say those things, but feel those things with the heart and then act on those things. That's why the preparatory section of our Lord's Supper form says that we are to abhor and humble ourselves before God. We mustn't misunderstand what that's saying. The idea is not that before we come to the Lord's Supper, we must utterly hate ourselves in an unhealthy way. No. The child of God who is redeemed by grace and precious in God's eyes does not hate himself as a person. The law of God says, love your neighbor as yourself. There is such a thing as a healthy self-love that the child of God has for himself or herself. But the idea of abhorring and humbling ourselves is that we see our sinful nature and that reality of our sin cuts us to the quick. We abhor that old man in us. And we lay ourselves low before God and we say, Lord, I don't have anything. I am not worthy of myself to be thy child or to come before you. I humble myself. It's the opposite of the Pharisee in the, in the, in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. He sticks his nose up in the air in the temple and he says, I thank God that I am not as other men are. Abhorring and humbling ourselves is what we see in the publican in that same parable. God be merciful to me, a sinner. The worthy partaker, the one who comes to the Lord's Supper and may come and must come and will be blessed in coming, is the poor sinner who says, I am just as other men. Indeed, I make Paul's words my own, and among poor sinners, I am chief. Contrary to the grain of our flesh, only publicans may come to the Lord's Supper. Make no mistake, by saying that I'm not saying sin, and then you can come to the Lord's Supper, what I mean is, Only those who know their sin. That publican in the parable had great sin. But there was sorrow for that sin. And there was a looking to Christ. That's the worthy partaker. That Pharisee who might outwardly have his life all together. He's a meticulous observer of the outward letter of the law. You might look at him and he's got a perfect life. A perfect family. Everything's all in order. But his heart is far, far from God. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When Jesus stands at the Lord's Supper, He gives this hand to the self-righteous, and His word for them is, repent, and do not come until you sincerely turn in repentance towards God. But his hand toward that sorrowful publican 
to that child of God with weak, struggling faith is come, come. Your seat is here. You belong here. Come, taste and see that I am good. My grace is sufficient for you. The only kind of sinner who may not come to the Lord's Supper is the impenitent sinner. And so we guard the Lord's Supper by admitting repentant believers. The last thing that's worth looking at for a moment is the end of question and answer 81. And who earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more and more holy. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with, a sincere, with sincere hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. The proper partaker is one who trusts in Christ, the believer. The proper partaker is the repentant believer. The one who knows himself to be a poor sinner. Who humbles himself before God and seeks the remission of his sins in Christ alone. But also this. The proper, the worthy partaker is the believer, the repentant believer who earnestly desires to grow in grace and to grow in holiness. The one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Who has a burning desire to improve his life. To please her God. A yearning for that growth. Even though he sees how small the beginning of his new obedience is. Yet he wants it to grow. Faith. Hungers for righteousness. Faith is not a complacent, lazy thing. And if it is, we have a spiritual sickness to address. Faith yearns for growth. Faith delights in what God delights in. And so the partaker of the Lord's Supper, before he comes, must ask, do I have that desire for holiness? Not am I holy enough. But do I yearn. To be holy. Do I yearn. For the things of God. If I do not have that yearning. If I do not care. About being holy. Then I really don't have a claim. To have faith. Merely occupying of pew doesn't mean I have faith. Merely being born into the church doesn't mean I have faith. Faith shows itself in this way. A sincere sorrow for sin and a sincere desire. To live unto my God and to walk in His ways. The Lord's Supper is instituted for the spiritually hungry. Those who are empty of themselves, but desire to be fed with Christ, to be nourished by Christ, such that we may grow up into Christ and bear much fruit. That's the worthy partaker. But those who are full of themselves, or full in themselves, or have no hunger, do well to stay away. For to partake would be to eat and drink judgment unto 
themselves. That's the calling, the guarding of the table. Now more briefly, let's answer the question, how? How? How do we guard the table? And we've gotten into this a little bit, and unavoidably so, because in looking at the marks, or the spiritual characteristics of the proper partaker, there's what we look at when we guard the table. That's who may come. And those who do not exemplify those spiritual characteristics must refrain. But how? How do we guard the table? And here there are two things we want to see. That there is a personal responsibility in the first place. And secondly, there is a communal responsibility or a collective responsibility of the church as a whole. Let's start with the personal responsibility. We all, before we come to the Lord's Supper, have a responsibility to prepare ourselves spiritually to come and to partake. Coming to the Lord's Supper is a very personal matter. It is a matter of personal conscience. Deeply so. Not merely so, as we'll see. It's not only a personal matter, but it is a personal matter. And this is where the calling to self-examination fits into the picture. We can be brief here because we looked at that in our preparatory sermon a little bit. Self-examination is a big part of how we spiritually prepare to come to the table. And this isn't just a tradition that we have in the Reformed churches, but it is a practice that is built upon biblical command. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.28, Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. And the idea is, only come to eat of that bread and drink of that cup after you have examined yourself, such that you come in a way that you are spiritually prepared. It's an important command. Context in 1 Corinthians 11 indicates that there were lots of problems in the church of Corinth. And one of the problems, it seems to be, was the members were not practicing appropriate self-examination before coming to the Lord's Supper. And so they weren't seeing their sins, their sins against one another. And they were coming to the Lord's Supper in an improper way. And this was leading to more and more problems in the congregation and was offensive to God. The Corinthians needed to be reminded of and admonished of their personal responsibility to come spiritually prepared and to spiritually prepare themselves by examining themselves. Not examining their neighbor and their neighbor's suitability to come. Not comparing themselves to another person in the congregation and saying, well, my life is in better shape than theirs, or I haven't fallen into that sin, so I must be good enough ready to come to the table, but a deep and appropriate biblical soul-searching of my own life. Examining myself in connection with these three marks in question and answer 81. My sorrow for sin. My trust in Christ. My hunger and thirst for His righteousness and for growth in grace. Is that there? Do I feel it? Is it true? And this is not something that is overly complicated. This is not looking for some grand supernatural experience that's somehow going to confirm to me that I'm a Christian. Self-examination is not doubting my salvation and throwing myself into fear 
Four times a year before I come to the communion table. But it's examining my conscience, my heart, my life. And facing the question, how am I living? Am I living as a Christian? And you see, self-examination helps prepare us because it helps us see areas where we are failing. So that we can be brought to sorrow and repentance. And that desire to grow in holiness is rekindled in us. And we're driven to the cross where we cast ourselves at the feet of Christ and say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. The idea of self-examination is not that I look myself over and say, yep, I'm good. But I look myself over and where I see God's work of grace in me, I give Him thanks. And where I see where I have fallen and stumbled, I take it to the cross. and I humble myself before God. And that puts me then in the proper spiritual posture to come to the Lord's table. Self-examination is a beautiful, beautiful, edifying practice. That's why though we do it in a more intense way before our practice of the Lord's Supper, let us do it every day of our lives. Indeed, it's a spiritual life skill that we ought to cultivate. That's the main way that we as individual believers carry out our responsibility to guard the Lord's Supper. By doing my diligence to ensure that I come spiritually prepared as a proper partaker. But there is also a communal responsibility. A collective responsibility of the church as a whole to guard the Lord's table. To preserve its holiness, its sanctity as the special feast of the covenant. There are a couple of ways that the church as a whole is called to do this. And the first that I want to point out is in the church's teaching, her doctrine, and her practice of the Lord's Supper. And here is where we're going to bring in question and answer 80. The polemic against the Roman Catholic Mass fits here. It fits with the main idea of Lord's Day, of Lord's Day 30 because the corruption of the Lord's Supper that the Mass is profanes the feast of God's covenant that the church is responsible for guarding. The doctrine of the Lord's Supper is important. And when that doctrine gets corrupted, the meaning of the sign and seal gets twisted. And if the doctrine of the Lord's Supper becomes so corrupted, and the practice of the Lord's Supper becomes so twisted, it will cease to function as the means of grace that God intends it to be. And our Reformed Fathers, as they were coming out of the errors that had accumulated throughout the centuries in the Roman Catholic Church, they saw the Mass and they said, That's not the Lord's Supper anymore. It teaches something completely different. The Lord's Supper is the covenant meal of the crucified and ascended Christ. 
The Lord's Supper has this message that you believing people of God have the full forgiveness of all of your sins through the one and once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that by a living faith you are engrafted into that Christ and all of His benefits are yours and you have communion with Him. That's what the Lord's Supper teaches and sets before our eyes. But the Mass says something different. The Mass says the death of Christ on the cross has not brought to you the full pardon of all of your sins. In fact, it is only of any real value to you if it is continually reenacted by the priest. Sacrificing Christ afresh upon the altar in the church. And you must partake of it time and time again to receive the remission of your sins. And our Reformed Father said that that flips the gospel on its head. It's a denial of the gospel. And that false doctrine which changed people's conception of what the Lord's Supper is led to all sorts of practices that are contrary against God's word. If that bread on the altar transforms into the actual body and blood of Christ and it's sacrificed by a priest, then it makes sense that people are now going to bow before that bread and worship Christ in it. An idolatry. And so question and answer 80 fits here. The church guards the Lord's Supper by carefully and diligently adhering to what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper. The Bible must control our understanding of the Supper. The Bible tells us what the signs and seals mean. And in our practice of the Lord's Supper, we are to diligently observe what the Bible says. We satisfy ourselves with a simple, unadorned practice of the supper. The way Jesus practiced it. So that nothing detracts or distracts from the message that the bread and wine set before our eyes. Christ crucified the foundation of my salvation. Full pardon for His sake. Communion. With him. That allows us to make an important application. Let's see here the vital relationship between doctrine and life. Doctrine and practice. Both are crucially important. Different times in the church. The church gets tugged. This way or that way. And there's always a tendency to veer in an extreme direction. To so emphasize one that the other is neglected. But let us be steadfast in the middle. Planting a foot firmly in doctrine and in life. And holding the two in their vital connection. Doctrine without practice and without living it out is dead and worthless. But a life without the truth, without the doctrine of the scriptures, is a life that is baseless, without principle, and open to the tyranny of human whim. Doctrine and life go together. Just like we can never divide faith and repentance, don't ever divide doctrine and life. Doctrine informs our life. Doctrine gives us the principles to live out. And the life of godliness adorns the doctrine 
of the gospel. But now the second part of the church's responsibility. Church is responsible for guarding the Lord's Supper by preserving the biblical truth of the Lord's Supper, guarding it doctrinally and liturgically as well, how it is practiced. But then also this, and question and answer 82 focuses on this part of the church's responsibility. The church, through her elders, has the responsibility of fencing the Lord's Supper. The idea is overseeing its administration and admitting worthy partakers while not admitting those who give evidence of being unworthy partakers. Question and answer 82 says, Are they also to be admitted to this supper who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? And the answer is no. No. For by this the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore it is the duty of the Christian church according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom till, that's important, the impenitent sinner or the unbeliever who's barred from the table, should he turn in repentance, should he come to faith, would be admitted till, till they show amendment of life. Here we see that though coming to the Lord's Supper is a deeply personal matter, a matter of individual conscience, it is not merely that. And the church errs if she makes it purely a personal matter. The church must not neglect her corporate responsibility through the elders to admit and to not admit. The church has the obligation to admit only those who give a credible confession of their faith in Christ. And who adorn that confession with a godly walk consistent with their confession. That's why member, confessing members in good standing are those who are admitted. And those from other congregations or other churches must answer certain questions or, or be interviewed by the elders before they are admitted to the table. That's not casting judgment on anybody, but it's a, a proper exercise of this responsibility of the church to do all that she can to admit only those who are confessing believers who are walking consistently with their confession. Those who declare themselves in confession or walk to be unbelieving or ungodly, the church has a responsibility to bar and say, repent and believe. Only then you may come. Now, of course, the church cannot look into hearts. And we are not called to. God does not give the church or the elders the responsibility of searching the innermost recesses of a human heart. We are simply called to be diligent and to make judgments based on the fruits, the visible fruits that we see. It can happen, and it does happen, that hypocrites come to the Lord's table. Because they are not known. God does not hold his church responsible for that. The responsibility of the church 
simply to admit or not to admit based on the visible evidence, the fruits seen in a person's confession and life. Why? Why is this important? Well, question and answer 81 explains that largely in the negative. It's worth taking our calling to guard the Lord's Supper seriously because if we don't, the Lord's Supper may be profaned. And because the Lord's Supper is so precious, so beautiful, so holy, it's the Feast of the Covenant. That's significant. And God is displeased when the supper is not treated or partaken of with the faith and reverence that He calls it or calls us to. And so the Catechism explains that the unbeliever who comes to the table will, will eat and drink judgment to himself. And the child of God who may be walking impenitently but comes to the table anyways, neglecting to examine himself, neglecting to spiritually prepare himself, that person will eat and drink chastening unto himself. And the congregation that throws aside its obligation and does not do its diligence to guard or defense the Lord's Supper, the, the justice pleasure of God will be kindled against that congregation and he may chasten. We see that in, in 1 Corinthians 11 where in verse 30, we're told that many were sick, and even some fell asleep. And by that, the apostle means had passed away. And Paul connects that to their neglect of their responsibility to oversee the Lord's Supper. Now, the idea is not that if we fail in that responsibility, God is going to strike the congregation with a plague. But the point is made that this matters to the Lord. And we do well to... Take seriously our responsibility personally and communally. Not just to avoid the displeasure of God, but we end positively. Because the Lord's Supper again is an act of worship. And just as we prepare to come to church, or we should prepare to come to church so that we're spiritually ready, so that we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, we sing the psalms from the heart, we unite our hearts with our fellow believers in prayer, we hear with the hearing ear of faith the word that is brought, and in doing so we give honor and glory to God. It's all worship, so too the Lord's Supper. We come to the table, we sit down with Christ. We meet with our Father. We taste and we see that He is good. It is an act of worship. And we want our whole heart to be in it, don't we? We want to guard, safeguard, protect the sanctity of this beautiful gift God has given. It's like Christ's engagement ring to His church. It's His pledge that He's coming back. And when He comes back, He's going to take His church to the wedding feast. The Lord's Supper is that engagement ring given to us as a pledge of what's to come. Just as you would cherish and you would protect and you would safeguard that engagement ring given to you by the person that you are about to marry, so the church ought to cherish the pledge of the wedding feast to come.
So may this word spur us on to be diligent in our responsibilities as believers to come to the Lord's Supper, to come prepared. May whenever we practice this beautiful sacrament, may the meaning shine, shine forth for our comfort and strengthening. Christ, I am His, and He is mine. For His sake, I have the full pardon of all of my sins. And now, and forevermore, sweet communion with Him. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, We pray that this word may be pressed upon our hearts for our encouragement and our strengthening and to guide us in an important responsibility of the Christian life as believers in the church. We thank Thee for the Lord's Supper. We thank Thee for this precious means of grace Thou hast given us. Grant that we may ever approach it in the proper way, that we may be spiritually minded and prepare ourselves whenever we partake. And may we be diligent as a church to guard the supper according to the commands of thy word. And be pleased, Father, to use it in our midst, ever for our edification and for thy glory. Amen.